stunning clean line design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. Veterans of the United States Armed Forces are inveterate team members, team builders, and leaders. They are self-starters and they work until the mission is complete. These are exactly the people businesses should be employing in droves. Yet, veterans face significant challenges transitioning from military to civilian life and employment. They experience a higher rate of bankruptcy than the civilian population. They suffer the burden of greater student loan debt than the civilian population. And an estimated 30% of our homeless population are veterans. Clearly, there is something wrong. Joining us to talk about these issues are three guests with substantial expertise in the economic issues affecting veterans and service members. Holly Petraeus served as an assistant director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where she led the Office of Service Member Affairs and, before that, led the Better Business Bureau's military line, which fostered outreach from more than 100 local Better Business Bureaus to military communities across the United States. Christina Stanger is a lieutenant colonel of the Iowa National Guard and is the commanding officer of the 109th Multifunction Medical Battalion. She's also a restructuring lawyer and partner at the Nymaster Good Firm in Des Moines, Iowa. Jack Williams is a professor at the Georgia State University School of Law, Go Panthers, and is a principal and team leader in the restructuring and consulting services practice of Baker Tilly U.S. Jack's expertise includes bankruptcy, debt, veterans issues, and American Indian and tribal law, among others. And what ties these three exceptional people together is that they were all members of the American Bankruptcy Institute's Task Force on Veterans and Service Members Affairs, where they work to understand, respond to, and coordinate with other institutions to remediate and prevent the adverse impact of debt on veterans and service members. Holly, Jack, Christina, welcome to the show. Yeah. So let's start at the top. Veterans get exceptional training in team membership, self-starting, discipline, working through the issues. Holly, what do veterans bring to a potential employer when they transition out of military, military life and into civilian life? Well, I think there's a number of things. First of all, um, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, they're all um, pretty careful now about who they actually take into the services. The old myth of, uh, you know, the judge said, go in the Army or go to jail is long gone. Now, uh, the people they recruit are have to, have to be pretty high quality. And so you're getting somebody who's already been vetted. And you're also getting someone that's been given extraordinary leadership opportunities at a very young age. I often think of my son, who served as a platoon leader in Afghanistan and at age 22 was making life and death decisions for the 40 soldiers in his platoon. That's pretty exceptional. And uh, so they have experience of leadership. They have experience of solving problems. and. They, they have experience of working as a team, with a team, and that's what they like to do. So I think they bring a lot of great qualities to the workforce, provided you use them in the proper way when you get them. And, and so we look at the challenges of a service member and their family as that service member transitions out of military life 
and into civilian life. And, and I'll put this to the group. What are some of the challenges that service members face upon reentering civilian life, sometimes after one enlistment, sometimes after a lengthy career? Well, let me start from the perspective of a military spouse. I think one difficulty for them is um, in this world where many families really need two incomes to uh, be successful, they have a spouse who has never had the chance to build a career. And I'm certainly um, an example of that in that I moved 24 times in 37 years. And, uh, you know, you just can't build a career with that kind of constant moving. And uh, there are challenges. You have a license that you can't transfer to the next state. So uh, they tend to come out uh, somewhat economically disadvantaged because they have a spouse that has not been able to build a robust career of their own and is going to be now looking as well to see what they can do. Um, so that's that's a perspective I wanted to put in there. So, so at just the moment when a person is kind of relearning their footing, their spouse is either unemployed or underemployed simply by nature of having been a spouse and, and dealing with the instability that that forces upon a family. Yes, that's certainly true of the active duty force um, that moves so frequently. And uh, I think in some cases, um, a disabled veteran may have a spouse that has caretaker duties that they have to do for their disabled spouse. So again, they're not going to be able really to look for uh, substantial work, if any. So um, you have to look at the whole family now because they're, you know, the one income household is kind of uh, not so viable anymore. And it's a real economic challenge for veterans. And, and how does that economic instability translate into the issues that a veteran has to face? Um, veterans deal with greater debt loads. They have um, greater mortgage forbearance than, than the civilian population. All of that portends to a coming problem for, for, for veterans' economic stability. How, how have you seen that play out? Um, it's interesting, really. They tend to have higher student loan debt, for example, than the average population, which always surprises people uh, because they have the GI Bill. But in many cases, they've spent that GI Bill at expensive private for-profit colleges that have piled on uh, private debt as well. So um, there's that disadvantage. Um, the VA uh, home loans are great, but we are seeing during this recent um, COVID era of COVID, COVID that a higher number of uh, veterans uh, VA loans are being put into forbearance, which doesn't bode well for the future. So there are definitely some some additional stressors that I think we need to be conscious of and keep an eye on. So there, are, if we talk about transitions for veterans into post-service employment. I think we could probably group them loosely into into three buckets. There are the veterans who transition to a job very similar to that which they were doing in the military, either through a lateral to a contractor that was providing people who were working side by side with with that service member. Uh, and so the job is basically the same, but for a, a different employer. There are the veterans who want to leave and start their own business, and they face a unique set of challenges and 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 complexities. And then there are the veterans who, who aren't necessarily doing a lateral to a service provider, keeping their job, quite possibly working in the same place, doing the exact same job with the exact same people, 
but they're just out into the workforce. Focusing on that second group, the veterans who are leaving the military and ha- and face the challenges of starting a business and getting off on their own, Jack, describe what they're facing and what they deal with. Well, it's, it is quite a challenge for anyone during this particular uh, stand down and restart of the economy. I mean, this is a unprecedented in many ways. Um, but I'm, I'm very bullish on this. I'm very excited about the opportunities that veterans have. And I want to uh, open their eyes to really an array of, of opportunities. I think, I think veterans are, are, are good employees. I think they're great employers. I want them to start their own businesses and build their dreams out. They have discipline, uh, they have training, they have responsibility, as Holly pointed out, teamwork, all of that comes together. That makes a great entrepreneur. And um, we've got so many programs. Uh, you could go to uh, those veterans that are listening out now or out there or those um, who know veterans. You can go to the Small Business Administration's website, sba.gov, and you will see an Office of Veteran Business Development or OVBD, so Oscar Victor Bravo Delta. Uh, that um, program is dedicated solely to promoting veteran entrepreneurship. Uh, it uh, helps facilitates the veterans' access to all of the SBA loan programs, including things like uh, funding, uh, federal procurement, um, supply chain help, uh, and of course. Um, uh, the veteran set-asides or programs that are designed for veterans. The SBA has over a dozen veteran-specific uh, small business loan programs as well. So, um, like I said, I'm very excited about this, uh, and every chance I get, I try to introduce um, veterans to these programs and the opportunity to not only be a great employee, but an even greater employer. Following up on that, Aside from special specific resources or unique resources that are available for veterans to to support them as they start opening a business, are there any specific challenges that a veteran faces starting a business that an ordinary civilian might not? Yeah, I think veterans are, um, both from personal experience and broader, too hard on themselves sometimes. I really do. I think they... They demand more of themselves than they do of others. And, and that's uh, this, the, the esprit de corps of, of um, the opportunity to serve, particularly uh, in all voluntary uh, armed forces. And I think what happens is when they put too much pressure on themselves, when things inevitably they will go bad, uh, they, they at times, uh, I think, amplify um, the downside. You know, I'm... Uh, along with Christina, we're in the world of bankruptcy, right? A world of regret. The fact that you're defaulting on loans or have financial distress is a way of life. It's how we succeed, right? It's not, um, you know, there's the old saying that success is someone who's picked themselves up five times from failing. And it's not that um, that they're successful on the fifth or sixth time, it's that they pick themselves up each one of those times to lead to to success. And I think I think it's um, you know Holly's point about already being self-selected. 
is, is so true. And there's uh, good and bad that comes of that because they, they are very demanding of themselves. So there's a 2015 study that was done by the University of Southern California School of Social Work and, and done with the support of Volunteers of America that discusses the, the principal challenges that veterans face when transitioning from military life to civilian life. And one of those, to the point that you were just making, Jack, is the challenge that comes from the continuation of their military identity, or more appropriately, not continuing their military identity. It's the, the military is a, a very collectivist culture. They are all, veterans are often faced with difficulty in knowing how to relate to civilians, with people unfamiliar with the, 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 the borders and requirements of military life. But as you pointed out, they're also changing their identity from non-commissioned officer Smith to Joe Smith, the guy who just opened the business at the end of the block and is facing these challenges that being a non-commissioned officer may not have ever prepared them for in a context that is quite possibly easier than military life, but fundamentally different. Um, and, and that drives self-esteem issues that they may not be prepared to deal with because a fundamental context change has happened in, in both of their self-identity and how they interrelate with the people around them. Uh, Christina, you're nodding your head and, and, and it looks like you have something you want to say. Oh, no, I, I certainly want to, um, I guess, piggyback and follow up on that. And, and that is, it's, it's an idea of structure, right? They're so structured and trained and processes. And when you jump into this world of entrepreneurship, which seems, um, you know, just like a black hole at times, I think that there is a little bit of that identity and collaboration and teamwork, but there's also this, this sense of structure. Um, and, and I often like to share, since I straddle both worlds with my guard service and civilian service, we're not that much different, those in military service and, and civilians, even though we all have different language and acronyms. Um, it's just a matter of, of getting that structure in place. So I love you know, that Jack's identified the SBA's programs because they do provide that structure. They do provide that training in that process that veterans are used to. Um, the, the transition of military identity doesn't have to go away. You can still be Sergeant Smith or, or you know, have that pride in, in that respect that, in those values that, that you've learned from and just to build upon that. So I guess I would just encourage people that it's not that much different to embrace embrace who you are and what, what brought you there and the successes you've already had. I have to weigh in on the different language and, and the different language and the acronyms. When I went to work for the federal agency that I worked at, I was in a meeting and one of the young um, non-veterans uh, in the meeting kept talking about EOD. And in the military, that means explosive ordnance disposal. In other words, bomb squad. And I thought, okay, that, that can't be what he's talking about. So I finally said, excuse me, what, what, what does EOD mean? And he said, end of day. <laughs> Very different context. <laughs> Separated by a common language, but different acronyms. <laughs> well, let's let's get into some of the economic issues, and in particular, there's a reason why we all know each other. Um, 
So I mentioned earlier, veterans have a higher rate of bankruptcy than the civilian population. And some of that has to do with young people being taken in and into a military life and given absolutely no financial training whatsoever, which is probably more of a failing of our, our high schools than, than anything else. Um, but, but the reality of it is going from a very structured life to a very unstructured life and, and having no financial preparedness to do that has the inevitable result. And, and then there are plenty of other reasons why veterans might experience bankruptcy, including the same reasons why civilians experience bankruptcy, such as medical bills. Um, one of the reasons why we all know each other is because we all got to work together on fixing what was a, a really terrible uh, oversight in the writing of the, the most recent iterations of the bankruptcy code, which led to veterans' disability benefits being considered income under the Chapter 7 means test, which is to say that veterans receiving Department of Defense or veterans' benefits would overwhelmingly be denied the fresh start of a discharge of their debts in Chapter 7 and would instead be funneled toward Chapter 13, where they would have to pay all of their disposable income to creditors for five years. So bankruptcy was more expensive, it was longer, it, was, it provided less relief, and it was denying veterans the fresh start that people on non-veterans disability, social security disability, would be able to, to obtain because social security disability benefits were not treated as income under the means test. And, and so a, a project arose to try and educate legislators on why this was a terrible, terrible idea. Um, and so I will put it to the group to talk about um, uh, veterans and the Haven Act. Sam, do you want me to give this one a go to get started, Holly? Sure. <laughs> well, fortunately, we had a an incredible um, topic to work with, an incredible subject matter to work with. We have, you know, well-deserving veterans who have earned benefits. And as a creditor's lawyer myself, I, I took a look at this, this problem set, set that was presented from the courts and um, very clearly identified the disparity on, on how we were treating our veterans so poorly, um, requiring them differently or to treat their income differently than other disabled uh, Americans. And so, with a, a few tweets of the bankruptcy code, we went to D.C. and Mrs. Petraeus, and under the leadership of, of Ted Gavin and the rest of the task force, we started um, to educate and change the law to, um, to bring that disparity back, back to equality. So now veterans that are receiving those disability benefits can protect those and truly get that fresh start that the bankruptcy code um, um, provides. What we found is that this the this was a an underlying condition to mental health issues. It was an underlying condition to getting that fresh start and um, coming out of depression or other sort of mental health illnesses. So we're hopeful that this will provide at least a tool in the toolbox for those veterans moving forward. I have to add that um, it really was the perfect bill. Um, it was righting a wrong. We don't think anyone intended to write the code, so it punished disabled veterans. It just, the language did that and nobody had realized it. Um, it wasn't going to cost the government anything to fix it. And um, we ended up with, in the Senate, 
40 co-sponsors, 20 from each party, which is pretty extraordinary in these times. And um, it was, you know, nice to see something they could all get behind. And it was one of the 1% of bills introduced in the last Congress that actually made it into law. So it was quite an accomplishment and we were all very proud to be associated with it. Well, and and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this bill was originally introduced by Senator Tammy Baldwin from the, 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 the senior senator from Wisconsin. And it was, it, she introduced it during a, a year when she was up for re-election, 2018. And there was just absolutely no chance that the majority was going to give somebody running for re-election in the minority an easy win. And that bill was an easy win. So it, it, it languished, it, it, nothing happened with it. And then when, when she won re-election handily, as it turns out, uh, the the political winds shifted and and the bill went forward with as as Holly you said really substantial bipartisan support both in the Senate and the House and, and a lot of that support is because of the efforts that that you and uh, all of you and and your colleagues put in in terms of educating legislators as to why this was a good and costless thing to do. Yeah, I don't know that I would say any bill was necessarily an easy win these days. Tim. Um, it was pretty painful just to to bring up the conversation about the bankruptcy code, because as those of us in this industry know, anytime you open that book, everybody, you know, I learned the Christmas tree principle, right? Everybody wants to take a crack at, at a financial um, piece of, of that, that code. You know, it's not a perfect system, um, but I think this was a great, uh, a great change that both Republicans and Democrats could get behind. So while uh, we faced, we had a lot of hard conversations and a lot of tough, even from my own Senator Ernst, right, from Iowa, you'd think, you know, my, my fellow war veteran colleague would, would get on board. Those are still tough conversations. And I think you really have to demonstrate um, the purpose for those constituents in, in those districts. Well, that really illustrates an interesting problem that, you know, despite the fact that people want to favorably treat anything that says veterans, what happens when the thing that says that is next to veterans is something that carries with it a social stigma like bankruptcy? A hundred percent. And that was some of the, the data we found, Ted, was the lack of data as we were moving forward with the, assessing the problem. And right as a, as a military member, we really wanted to get after a tough problem. Um, what we learned is that there was no data on this. And, and which veteran wants to come forward and say, yeah, you know, not only am I disabled, a disabled veteran that's receiving benefits, but now I'm in financial distress. So we did find a lack of data, you know, self-reporting, shaming, you know, those sorts of emotions that go along with bankruptcy for those of us who, who maybe don't work in this industry. Holly, you mentioned earlier uh, student loan debt. And that veterans have higher, so greater student loan debt than the civilian population, and and how the GI Bill doesn't necessarily help with that. In fact, it it seems to make them a target for for-profit colleges because now they've got some seed money and and they can borrow even more. the The U.S. Department of Education last week instituted an exemption on student loan uh, student loans for borrowers who are students of failed for-profit colleges. I think the phrase that was used in the media was they were defrauded by for-profit colleges. And that could be because the college never provided what it was going to provide or said it was going to provide, or the college simply failed. Um, how do you think that 
last fact that the Department of Education is 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 starting to do exemptions. How is that going to change the practice of for-profit institutions seemingly targeting veterans for their GI Bill dollars and the availability of, of loading them up with debt? Well, um, actually, there's something very interesting that was in a little subparagraph of the COVID bill that just passed and was signed into law that uh, talks about this very thing. Um, long ago, the Higher Education Act, I think in 2008, had a sentence in there that said no uh, private for-profit college can get more than 90% of its um, income from federal education funds. The rest has to come from other places. In other words, people are willing to pay for it themselves. The problem, once again, was a language problem. Federal education funds, uh, they put, you know, um, administered by the Department of Education. Well, guess what? The military's GI Bill isn't part of the Department of Education money. It comes from the VA or from the Department of Defense. So with that language, they put the military uh, education money squarely in the 10% that those schools were desperate to get. So it put a huge target on um, military as uh, targets of opportunity for recruitment. Um, I actually wrote my one and only op-ed in the New York Times back in, I think, 2011 maybe, and said they are looked at now like dollar signs in uniform because these colleges need them as students. For every one using the GI Bill, if they sign up, they can get nine other students. And uh, that was, we struggled to change that for over 10 years. Um, I'll shout out Senator Durbin particularly, who never gave up. And uh, by golly, they got it changed in the COVID bill and said the military money is going to be in the 90% now. So it's not going to be implemented for a couple of years. Um, that was a little horse trading at the end, I think. But I hope that this will take the target off service members so they will not be uh, so heavily advertised to by an industry that unfortunately has a track record of um, these colleges cost more, they have lower graduation rates, higher student loan default rates, and uh, frankly, very poor employment prospects for their graduates. Many of these schools, not all, but many of them. So um, another bit of legislation I'm quite excited about, and I really hope it does make an impact, because the GI Bill is such a wonderful benefit. Uh, after World War II, you know, you had a generation come home and go to college, and become the engine that drove our economy. And we want this generation of veterans to use their GI Bill to equal effect. And uh, I think now they have a better chance of doing that. Okay. We're talking with veterans affairs experts, Jack Williams, Christina Stanger, and Holly Petraeus. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted, B-I-Z disrupted, or email them to comments at disrupted.business. Stay with us while we take a short break for some commercial messages. When we return, we'll talk about how our existing service members are a new greatest generation that can lead our way back to economic stability from the pandemic. We'll be right back. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAMBusiness. Again, that's at VoiceAMBusiness. And stay current. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. 
Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. And if you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments or just say hello. We're talking with veterans affairs experts Christina Stanger, Holly Petraeus, and Jack Williams. One of the things that we talked about earlier on in the show and, and that I alluded to before the break is that we are at an economic inflection point in this country. Uh, we have been labored under a debilitating pandemic for a year now. Um, businesses have had to redefine themselves. Uh, it, unemployment shot up and, and is only marginally returning to, to, to what it normally is. But the, the ripple effects of the pandemic when it comes to jobs, the workforce, and, and our overall economic well-being as a nation um, really, I, do, I don't think hasn't been fully understood yet. Is this an opportunity for the nation to really re-examine and in some respects reset and redefine its relationship with its veterans and the workforce and how we as a country approach the, the, the integration of veterans into our society? Ahead, you know I love this question. Go ahead, Holly. I was going to say, I hope so. I think um, you know, there are now nonprofits of veterans who do, who go out and really do wonderful things during times of crisis. So um, that's a place where they're modeling just exactly what they can do uh, for all of us. So I just wanted to mention them. But Christina, over to you. 
Yeah, I think what we're seeing right now, Ted, is in times of, you know, veterans and military service members thrive in, in times of challenge and, and great problem solving. They, they thrive, you know, on a need to serve and a duty to respond, you know, not necessarily in times of crisis, but they do well in those scenarios because the pressure is up. I think you're seeing that play out when, um, you know, the vaccine was driven by, by an army um, mission, right? It, it's a civilian and public-private public partnership. I think that is the model that, that has served us well over the last year. And I think those folks that have that training and experience with military service um, have a unique opportunity to step forward and to take some of, the, some of these industries um, forward. I mean, we're seeing that in the Reserve and Guard where they step forward in both their military service and uh, in civilian world. I really do believe we have a generation of young leaders here who are, are just on the edge of uh, being engaged to take something, you know, to take that next step. And I really, I really do en encourage all of us to engage them um, and to, you know, load them up with that responsibility because they're looking to serve and they're looking for that responsibility. Jack, what do you think? Yeah, I would, I agree totally. I mean, the, the, um, the ability to work in um, challenging times, the ability to address problems on a day-to-day -day basis with, without all the information you would like, without all the time you would uh, hope. Uh, that's, you know, that's just Monday for a, a veteran when they, when they were in the service. Uh, so um, this is some, you know, these are the skills uh, born of life experience and training and living it that um, are very difficult to find um, early on in the civilian workforce, uh, but something that uh, exists uh, in the, the military workforce, if you will, and in the veterans themselves. And I think uh, recognizing that uh, is an important first step, but, but then facilitating their opportunities as employees or employers in their own businesses uh, become important, including revisiting the status of some of these veterans uh, who were uh, separated from service, let's say, in less than honorable conditions. So, Jack, that's that's an important point. Uh, one of the challenges that service members face when separating from the military, particularly if they have anything other than an honorable discharge, is the stigma of a less than honorable or dishonorable discharge. It's It's the equivalent of, of not having a high school diploma in in the context of seeking employment or worse. It, it's the equivalent of having a criminal record. As, as a lot of rules in the military have yielded to changes in social norms, um, and I'm thinking specifically about things like the repeal of don't ask, don't tell, and, and, the, and, and other guiding military principles, the military has has started to reconsider less than honorable discharges and retroactively uh, revoke that status and replace them with with more liberal liberal treatment. Um, and and I'll I guess I'll ask Jack, you and and Christina, um, what are some of these moving parts? How did they come about? How do veterans or veteran service organizations or veterans legal organizations approach doing this? So we can we can kind of take the rock off of their back. Sure, this is a this is a hot button issue right now. Um, Georgia State University, my um, 
a home institution has and a veterans affairs clinic. They focus, they're focusing on this issue. I know that's true across a number of different universities uh, and clinics as well. Uh, removing these impediments, as you said, Ted, um, uh, societies change. The, the views on things that would have been um, uh, impermissible and would have resulted in less than honorable separations are no longer impediments to a, a robust and vibrant career in the military and in the civilian workforce. Uh, they've, those obstacles have been removed. But you know, the paperwork, in, as we know from, from those of us who know people in the military or serve, the paperwork often lags quite behind the process. Uh, and so I think um, the, the, the focus that the clinics are undertaking and um, others who are advocates for veterans uh, are trying to move this along. And if I could say anything to the, the audience, and then I'll hand it off to Christina, who I know has done a lot of work in this area. Um, you need, to, if, as a veteran, someone who served you and who's been separated uh, by less than um, honorable status, you need to reach out to these clinics and to these advocates. You need to, to become your own advocate uh, and with the help of these clinics, uh, get that status changed because it's quite liberal, quite forgiving, and it is in many ways a wonderful thing, right? Um, the ability to, to forgive. Christina. Um, Jack, um, so many great messages there and encouragement. I, I echo that as well. You know, the Missouri Tigers have a program. There's a program in Chicago. Um, the discharge upgrade application process can certainly seem overwhelming, especially to those, you know, who aren't aware of the legal uh, background. But since 2010 and after the Don't Ask, the repeal of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell, we have seen um, more women and men um, be able to serve regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of, you know, a mental health issue or PTSD or TDI, sexual uh, harassment, all of those sorts of um, conditions that used to be looked negatively upon for your discharge are now being reconsidered and reexamined by the discharge review boards. So any of you folks, you know, from World War II all the way through, you know, the present day, reach out. We encourage you to check in with these clinics and get that process started because, you know, not only can it be freeing and forgiving, but it can be really that gateway to the next um, best economic, you know, step up that you might have, right? Having the ability to, to seek positive and, and solid and strong employment is only going to make you financially more secure. So definitely take a look at those, um, uh, the Hegel memo, the Curta memo, and some other related laws since 2010 have really um, brought in that opportunity for, for a discharge upgrade. Christina, what are the Hegel memo and the Curta memo? Well, these are, these are memos that um, provide additional guidance uh, for the Discharge Review Board and for the Department of Defense in, in evaluating um, characteristics of discharge. You know, and we can, a simple Google will bring up um, more of those details. But again, it can be overwhelming to just get the application process going. But the great news is these military assistance programs and these clinics, you have a bunch of young law students eager to help and, and they will walk you through that process. Same with veteran 
um, organizations like your, your military service organizations, American Legion, AF, you know, VFWs, et cetera. Um, I would not underestimate the fact that every federal building in each of our states, right, or in the capital of each of our states, have folks whose job and, and um, passion is to serve veterans uh, and military members through these processes. So please don't, re- don't hesitate to reach out. Jack, one of the things that, uh, well, let me take a step back. There is, in the context of, of discharge, less than honorable discharge being reevaluated and, and reconsideration being available, it's helpful then for, for our listeners who are business owners or employers to remember that if somebody comes to you and has an other than honorable discharge, there are different types of other than honorable discharges and there are different reasons for them. So simply having the box checked doesn't necessarily mean that what they did is even a, a punishable violation now. And so it's, it, it's important for a potential employer to remember that. Yes. Um, Jack, we, uh, one of your areas of expertise are among indigenous tribes, uh, Native American nations, and they are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly overrepresented among uh, our service, particularly the enlisted class. Um, one of the, one of the difficulties that veterans often face in transitioning from military life to civilian life is the fact that they are changing from a collectivist society, which is military life, to an, individ- an individualist society, which is civilian life. Um, civilian life is, generally speaking, all about oneself, and, and military life is very much oriented towards one's place in the core. The, I mean, one of the, one of the core principles of many, if not all, of the Native American peoples is collectivism. It's, it's doing that which is best for the society. Um, is there an opportunity? Well, I wonder if, A, there is an opportunity here for, for the service members who are members of those nations to be able to, to help others in making some of those transitions because they've lived surrounded by individualists and, 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 and who haven't been the greatest neighbors for a very long time but also what can we be learning from the way the, the native peoples are integrating and disintegrating with their military lives? Yeah, the, uh, it's a great question. Look, the, I've always thought, my dad always taught me that the, the greatest weapon in the United States happens to be Americans. They come from many different backgrounds. They have a very diverse views. Um, they have, notwithstanding some of the things we see, um, uh, a lot of respect for each other, and most strongly believe that nothing good comes with Americans fighting against Americans. And that is, I know my socialist, co- so my um, social studies colleagues um, would challenge me on that, but that's kind of a, a tribal component, not in a nativist sense, but in a communitarian sense. The notion that coming together it's not just one plus one equals three, but it elevates the entire process, the people who are in it, the process itself. It's almost, you know, uh, from a spiritual perspective, a holy pursuit. And uh, the recognition that, that uh, within the tribe or 
with the tribes interacting uh, with non-tribal members throughout the country, um, that we can elevate each other. is something very consistent with um, most American Indian traditions. Now, you know, there are over 500 tribes and uh, probably 700 different traditions within the tribe, so it's hard to speak uh, with authority from any particular uh, tribal perspective, let alone all of those tribes. Um, but um, there are a lot of things that we could uh, harvest from uh, that environment. Uh, and in fact, if I can segue back to the entrepreneurial context, some of the best um, success stories in the small businesses over the last decade, maybe the, even the last five years, have been uh, veterans who served together in various units who've come together now and have replicated what was great about their experience in the military, that teamwork and the ability to have each other's back and the loyalty and the ability to rely on things so that you can lean forward and not fear that you're going to be a failure because you have the people to your right and your left that you kind of grew up with in tough situations right there with you. And so there's, there's some great, great success stories. Um, that are built on very similar principles to the success, success stories and uh, in Indian country. And, uh, and, and just a, a quick add, um, and then I'll be quiet because it is an exciting thing. The tribes are coming back. They were devastated, uh, veteran and non-veteran alike, many of the tribes by COVID-19. They had a higher uh, mortality um, rate associated with uh, the disease. Um, they have, with many of them, great infrastructures so that you have uh, many of the tribes, the Oklahoma tribes are the ones I'm most familiar with, who've gotten the vaccines out to their people and are now offering the vaccines they have to non-Indians to help in the process of, of vaccination and, and the conquest of, of uh, this dreadful uh, disease. Um, and at that rebirth uh, has provided a great foundation uh, for uh, military personnel who separated from service here now. Now veterans being welcomed back into the community and, and the focus on their mental health. Um, and I think it's been, there have been terrific strides in that area among the, the uh, Native American populations. So you, you mentioned um, you mentioned COVID and the success that the nations have had in, in vaccine programs. It reminded me yesterday I was, I was driving around and I was listening to the Al Franken podcast and, and he was interviewing Andy Slavitt, who is the White House liaison to the federal government's coronavirus task force. Um, and one of the things that, that Slavitt pointed out was that nations that have collectivist principles have done overwhelmingly better with the with the pandemic and in, in locking it down um whereas individualist nations typically younger nations uh, have had a harder time the u.s being a perfect example new zealand being a perfect example of of a country that did a good job with the pandemic and 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 so what you're what you're saying speaks i think directly to that that when when everybody is looking at the monolith and saying we've we've got to we've got to do what we've got to do for the group then it 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 works more effectively, um, and and that is certainly part and parcel of military life. So, 
we find ourselves here getting back to my, my, what is this going to look like when we come out of the pandemic question? And I'm going to open this up for everybody. We've got a lot of unemployed people in the country right now and adding more unemployed people is, is, is not going to be something that happens without some degree of discussion. So you'll have veterans transitioning out of the service, no more or less than usual. Um, looking for jobs, taking their talents with them. But at the same time, uh, you'll have people who have been unemployed or underemployed for a protracted period of time also looking to to resume employment. What do we in the civilian population need to do to, to make sure that we can use veterans as the force multiplier that they are, as the positive influence that they are, as the ability to get this all restarted that they can be? I guess I'll start that one. I've certainly seen, um, I think there needs to be outreach. Basically, they need to say to the veteran population, we want you to come and work for us. You're welcome here. There have been some great initiatives, for example, um, on Wall Street, you know, vets on Wall Street, vets at work, um, some terrific ones where significant numbers uh, of vets have been hired. And I think that needs to be, the welcome mat needs to go back out. And they basically need to say, we're hiring, we want you. And the federal government also, um, you know, f- the federal agencies all encourage hiring of veterans, but some do it better than others. So I think the federal agencies need to recommit to themselves that they'll put somebody in charge of their veterans hiring initiative who actually, you know, gets after it. And uh, again, puts the word out and actively looks for those candidates. So I think the main thing right now is probably, um, again, rolling out the welcome man and saying, we haven't forgotten about you. We think you'll be a great employee. We want to hire you. And military spouses, too, because <laughs> uh, they're terrific as well. Talk about resilient, you know. You get your spouse comes home and says, guess what? We're moving next week to uh, another country. Yay! And as a boss, you know, you have to sort of deal with that. So military spouses are um, among my favorite people and don't forget them. They bring a lot to the table as well. Definitely. You've got some tough cookies, both, you know, in spouses and in the service members. I think, you know, you highlighted the federal agencies, um, Holly. Um, state States can do the same thing. Iowa, for example, has a program called Home Base Iowa where they're utilizing a transition program uh, from active duty or reservists to um, uh, to boost the economic development of, of, uh, of the civilian manufacturers and industries here in Iowa. If you're looking for a solid workforce, you're gonna find it in a military member or spouse. On the same uh, lines, we need to look for barriers to break down um, that, that are preventing some of those spouses or military members to transition. So, you know, now in the Soldier for Life Transition Assistance Program, which came out in 2019 from the Department of Defense, all the soldiers and spouses have this transition curriculum that they go through. Um, and part of that is to help them build a curriculum or, or a resume, right, in their 2586 to, to identify and translate the skills that they bring to the civilian table. So I think we, like, in addition to opening and welcoming, welcoming folks, I like um, Jack's comment, and that is facilitating their growth and encouraging uh, their leadership and empowering their leadership. So one of the things that that happens when a veteran transitions out of the military, and we've got a few minutes left, I, I wanted to dive into this a little bit. 
Um, the, the Department of Defense, the military itself has transition services for veterans. Um, how can how can somebody on the outside who is going to be looking to hire these vets, who these vets are going to be approaching for work, how can they better understand what these transition services look like so so they know what this prospective future employee is going through on their way out the door? Well, I think there's a number of, you know, websites out there you can certainly look at. There are also a number of military and veteran service organizations that can help, uh, you know, help you understand better. Um, the one thing I do caution about, because um, working at the Better Business Bureau, I saw such a tremendous amount of scams, and I would certainly want to warn about um, employment scams, which are, you know, um, I think the Better Business Bureau said veterans are more likely to get caught up by scams. Um, so just because you find something on the web doesn't mean it's a definitive source or a reliable source. Um, so I think you need to be careful of that. And uh, there are a lot of great nonprofits out there that can help, but you do need to vet it and, and do that with the major charity rating organizations or the National Resource Directory. So yeah, GuideStar or the National Resource Directory? Or the Better Business Bureau, give.org. Okay. Well, that's going to have to be the last word as we are running out of time. Holly Petraeus, Lieutenant Colonel Christina Stanger, and Professor Jack Williams, thank you so much for joining us today. Holly Petraeus is an advocate for the military community and is a former director of the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where she led the Office of Service Member Affairs. Christina Stanger is a partner in the Des Moines, Iowa office of Iowa's largest law firm, Die Master Good. Jack Williams is principal of Baker Tilly U.S. in their restructuring group and a professor at Georgia State School of Law and the Middle East Studies Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Links to their respective firms and social media will be on the show's website under this episode's show notes. You can find the American Bankruptcy Institute's Task Force for Veterans and Service Members Affairs on the web at veterans.abi.org and on the Twitter machine at VetAffairsTF. Links to the studies cited during this episode are available on our website. If you like what we're doing, share it. Talk about us on social media and spread the word. We're BIZ Disrupted on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and the more listeners we have, the more we'll have to talk about. And most importantly, thank you for listening. I hope you join us again next time as we explore the historic challenges faced by restaurants as the COVID pandemic gained footing then settled in for longer than anyone predicted. Restaurants have survived by reinventing themselves. Our guests will talk about how they did it. Next time, restaurants in the time of COVID. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Kara Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.